I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you are not there for your child, nobody else will be. So just to, just to try to give your child the reassurance that actually it's going to be okay. Just trust me, it's going to be okay. And when you are out of this, the world will be a much, much better place. There'll be, the light will be much, much brighter. They won't believe it at the time. They won't, they, 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 they won't because they'll be, in such, they'll be in such mental pain. But all you can say is look at them in the eyes and say it's going to be all right. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. My name is Yvette and this week I'm going to be chatting to Mark Simmons. He's a father, a businessman and now an author. We're going to be chatting to him about his new book, which is called Breakdown and Repair, A Father's Tale of Stress and Success. I'm now 56 years old and I'm thinking if there's one thing that, that I'd like to leave as a bit of a legacy, if, that, if that's not too pompous, it would be my experiences of mental ill health. Because I've, I've been through the mill um, throughout my life in, in a couple of ways. As you say, first as a, as a sufferer and then as a carer. So, and I know how important mental health is now as a topic and it's getting on everybody's agendas. So I just feel that the, the more that I can come out of the mental health closet, so to speak, and share my experiences, the better for everyone. So when did you yourself start being affected by mental illness? Um, well, when I wrote the book, I realised that I probably... Suffered from mental ill health when I was quite young. So when I look back on things and realise experience that I had when I was sort of fifteen, sixteen, I now can see that I was quite a anxious child. Um, I was always the person that would be in bed at ten o'clock on exam night, not because I was complacent, but because I was always overprepared and <laughs> didn't want to leave things at the last minute. So, and again, I love sport, love playing sport, but I was not the kind of person that you'd of bet to take the winning penalty in the World Cup or serve out for, for the match in Wimbledon because I was always a bit tight and tense. So I think probably it was quite early in my career, early in my life rather, that I, I realised I was quite an anxious person. And, and again, when I read my, wrote my book, it was 
possibly partly due to my mother, Alice, who was uh, an anxiety sufferer. So she suffered from depression and anxiety. Uh, and so I think that she probably passed on her genes to myself when I was young. So when did your anxiety start becoming a, a, an issue, a problem? Well, I think it becomes more noticeable when you enter into the world of, of business, into the adult world. So when I was about 23, 24, I started my first proper job working um, for a, a company called Unilever. And I was only a, a lowly young trainee, so I wasn't under any amount of, of stress. But there was just one one day when all of a sudden I was in front of my computer just getting through my to-do list and I tried to do the next item and I simply couldn't. And I looked at the computer screen and, 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 I, and I froze. And it was quite frightening because I didn't know, quite know what was happening to me. So I sort of stepped away, walked downstairs, um, wandered around a bit, came back to my, my, my computer, tried again, nothing. So, And then I suddenly panicked a bit and sort of spoke to my boss. My boss said, look, why don't you go and take a, a, a week off work? And at the time, because this is back in back in sort of late 1990s, is that the doctor says, well, maybe you've had a little bit of a panic attack. Here we go. Here's some medication. Go away. Back to work in a week. And we, we're good to go, really. So so I think that was my first, what I call my, my, my first little blip that kind of taught me that things were, were not always that straightforward. And what happened subsequently? Well, that, I think the, the issue was, was that I was probably in the wrong job. So I think the big thing that I, I stress in the book is that is that if you're quite an anxious, stressed out person, then the most important thing is for you to try to find a working environment that suits your personality. So I was really more of an introvert. I was into helping people develop. I was moderately ambitious, but found myself in a working environment that was much more task-driven, was was quite ambitious, and was full of extroverts. So it was just difficult to, 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 to be at my best. So when I moved into the world of management training, um, that's when I suddenly realized that there could be a work environment where your personality wasn't being put under pressure every single day of the week. So that was like the big relief for me. So beforehand, when we were chatting before the podcast, um, you talked about that you had a breakdown. It was, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that sort of phrase, because I'm not sure we hear that phrase very often. What actually happened... Well, it's a good question because, first of all, the, the word, the term breakdown, if you look in the medical dictionary, doesn't exist. So there's no, there's no, the, the, there's no definition for the word breakdown. But it was, ex it was extremely real because what, what happened was that after five or six years of bliss working management training, I then made this horrific decision to think that I was good enough to go into business on my own with a couple of colleagues. Um, and I was back in the work environment full of sort of extroverts, full of people getting tasks done. So I was just was in, a, in, in the wrong pool, so to speak. Um, and slowly over the course of about a year, a little bit like Chinese water torture, every day there was a drip, drip, drip. Every day became slightly more stressful, slightly more stressful. And over a period of sort of six, to six, to six or seven months, things got progressively worse. But because this was my dream, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, got to sort of make it in business. I just didn't want to give up. But unfortunately, again, one day in my home office, similar to my very first experience of having a little blip, I was there in front of my computer again. And um, once again, I looked at the computer and everything froze. And I said, OK, right, deep breath, downstairs, cup of coffee, back upstairs, the computer still says no. 
back downstairs and still nothing. So I thought, okay, well, let's just go to the doctor. And the doctor says, look, you're just a bit stressed. You're a bit overworked, two or three weeks off. And, uh, and then you'll be right as rain. So that's, that's what I did, two or three weeks off. But then when I came back to my computer, I looked at it again and still it was saying no. So fundamentally, I had at that point broken down. And what's interesting about a breakdown is that actually it's a good thing because what, what's happening is the brain is taking things out of your hands. It's kind of saying, look, you know, you're, you're, you're not fit to work. But, and until you're fit to work, I'm not going to let you continue. So the brain is actually telling you to stop. And at that point, I was experiencing, not unfortunately, just a panic attack, but it was like a full, full-on breakdown. So when you say you were looking at the computer and the computer says no, does that mean you, you're sort of looking at a screen, but you couldn't read the words? Or what, what do you uh, actually mean? No, no, I could read the words. I was quite coherent. But then I said, OK, now I got on my to-do list, say five or six things for the day. You pick up the first one and you start tapping away the computer. But your mind is just racing with a dozen other thoughts in, in your head. You think about what about those other things I've got to got to do on my to-do list so it's kind of like you start things but your head is just full of stuff so at that point you just can't get through the items on your to-do list so and and then then what happens is you start not doing anything at all and you start realizing you're getting behind and as you get behind you start to panic more and more and you spiral and you spiral so it just becomes worse and worse and worse and you come back to your to-do list and still nothing there and and then you get to a point where you just you just stop mm. Sounds like it kind of is this big sort of snowball of stress and anxiety. Um, how did you, what sort of treatment did you get? Um, well, this is, this is now um, a few years later on after, the, after the, the, the sort of the little blip. So you go to, go to the doctors and they kind of get what's happening and they, they diagnose that what you have now is agitated depression. So that's the depression that you get once you've basically been stressed for so long that eventually you become depressed. So you then get onto medication and the doctor then says, right, you should go to the NHS centre and, and, and get some booklets about how to cope with stress. And you're kind of being patched up a bit. So that's what it is. And go away and come back and you'll be okay eventually. So, But unfortunately, the problem was, was that you go away and you are broken and um, the medication, if it does work, it takes sort of three or four weeks to work, but it might not work. And in my case... I just couldn't get better. And I, I think at the back of my head was, I've got to get better because I, I'm letting down my two colleagues at work and we got mortgages, we got money, we got bills to pay. I've got, I've got a family here at, at home and everything in your head just is, is conspiring against you trying to get better. And the more that happens, the worse you become. So what the brain needs to happen to it is for it to get switched off but you get to a point where you are panicking all the time. So you're just not giving your brain a break and it gets worse and worse. <laughs> if that makes sense. How did you sort of break out of that cycle? It's uh, okay. So this is not, this is not a typical, it's not a recommended way to, to break out of a, of a depression. So imagine four months at home and it gets worse and worse and worse. Nothing seems to work. No medication works. No talking therapies work. You try to find a very busy road and I find a busy road and eventually a truck comes along and the truck, you know, I throw myself in front of the truck and I um, suffer head injuries and a collapsed lung, but obviously I don't die. And then I get helicoptered to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. And, uh, and this, is the, this is the strange bit here. So imagine that 
I'd been so desperately ill for about four months and I wake up in hospital and my wife is there with one of her girlfriends and I make a lewd joke and it's it's the first time in months that I've been able to to smile or laugh and I'm not cured but I'm just suddenly being knocked into shape and from that moment on that moment on you know gradually 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 I get better and better so it is not this is not the conventional way to get over a break no it's quite different not to be recommended to anyone but this is what happened I'm being truthful so how did you then go about getting back to normal life did you moderate it for sort of your mental health stuff yeah that's a good question I mean that's that's exactly what happened next so I'd I'd got a big shock you know I'd been given a second chance whatever you want to call it wake up call and I owed it to my family to just to just to start again so I then said right this is silly you know let's 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 find a way of 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 finding an occupation that is suitable to me and a lifestyle that's much more balanced so I immediately gave up my shareholding in my in my company I became a freelancer a much more relaxed kind of lifestyle back into training and we just had a much more balanced life so all the things that people talk about now uh, around eating well sleeping well exercising socializing we just did and sort of you know for a period of about 10 years we just had a blast. So we had a decade that was just a great decade. Nothing majorly went wrong. Had a good time, had a fun time. And mentally, I was able to kind of to control things much more easily because I kind of understood really now, in a sense, the triggers that were going to send me down a wrong path. How were your family affected by this time? Um, well, my, my children were quite young at the point. So imagine that when I had the big blip, um, Jack was two and Emily was five and Will was seven. So they were relatively young. And my wife, Mel, you know, I mean, she was the real hero because she had to put up with everything. But, um, and the difference between Mel and, Mel and me is that Mel is much more, let's say, normal. She's much more level-headed. She's sort of, uh, she's not suffered from mental ill health and has not had experience of it um, within her family. So she was just very stable, thank God, because she sort of helped me through the illness. So, but by the time I'd sort of got, 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 let's say a bit better, Mel was just exhausted by everything. So she just needed a bit of a break. So, and I think fortunately, because we decided as a a family that we had to sort of review how we lived our lives, things got back on an even keel. And what about your work colleagues? Because it sounds like you'd got into quite a exciting to start with and then sort of fairly serious um project with a couple was it a couple yes, of other couple, yes, friends yes, slash yes, colleagues yes. how did they respond no i mean it was it was very difficult for them i mean horribly difficult for them I imagine new business you could not afford to have one of your partners being off ill off but, sick but did you manage to kind of explain about the mental health side of things yeah i mean at the time i mean obviously when i took the initial couple of weeks off i had to say this is what's happened to me um, and then once I went back to work and that failed, I then said, look, I'm really sorry, but I've got to take unlimited time off work. And I could only explain to them as well as I could do what was happening. And Mel, my wife, did her best to do the same. Um, and they were very understanding because, but also they just didn't have a clue kind of what was happening. And, you know, to their great credit is that they were both prepared to fund me whilst I was off work, which took pressures off my mind. 
Um, but there came a point when, you know, understandably, they just needed to know, well, what can we do to, to move the business on? So, um, but I wouldn't want to you know, wish that on anyone to have that pressure from their point of view. So it was just very difficult all round, really. Have you managed to talk to any of your friends about the mental health side of things? Well, I mean, I think the one thing when I suffered this sort of this big blip is that I decided afterwards that the best thing for me was to be quite open and honest about things because it was quite a dramatic thing. I mean, I could hardly say that I'd been off work because I had a bit of a flu virus. I mean, I'd basically throw myself in front of a 10-ton truck. So it was quite dramatic. And I thought, well, the best thing to do is just be open and honest about things. And and um, I received some uh, some some great coaching um, from a wonderful woman called Sue Holland, who just said, look, one thing that you could do is start writing about it. So back in the day, back in sort of 2004, I, I put pen to paper and I wrote about 15,000 words just to try to, to, to understand exactly what had happened, why it happened. And that was very, very cathartic. So that was my way of trying to cope with things after the event by sort of putting pen to paper. And you recovered really well. You've been sort of changed a whole sort of working life and you, you said you have 10, 10 years of you know everything going brilliantly um but then you've also um, had the experience of looking after your daughter who suffered from anorexia uh, when did that start okay so basically imagine from about 2002 to 2012 the, the golden decade just a great decade and ironically it was it was 2012 the summer of the, the great olympics when you know, it was such a glorious summer, nothing could go wrong, um, that in autumn of that year, um, Emily had just turned 16. She was just entering her A-levels. And one day she came back home and just said to, to us, look, I've got some news. I've, you know, I've been making myself sick. And um, what it transpired that it was the beginning of an eating disorder. So, and I think at the time, because we didn't really understand it, we'd had no experience of anorexia or bulimia, so we didn't quite know what it meant. We were a little bit relaxed about things because you wouldn't look at her and say, well, there's something wrong with you. She was looked absolutely fine and you couldn't spot any odd behaviors. So, so we didn't know quite what to expect. Um, but I mean, I think six years later when we were sitting in a cafe in Mallorca on a holiday and we looked at Emily eating a plate full of food and we just both said to her that we're so proud that you can eat properly again we just realized just what we'd been through so it was like six years later that suddenly you know we could honestly say maybe we had sort of got through the worst mm. so it was six difficult years basically yes. um what did you do to support your child Okay, so, um, I mean, the, fir the first thing is that when we realised that Emily had a problem is that we, we were quite proactive. So we went to the NHS, we went to um, the people that looked after adolescents with mental health problems, and they were very good. So we, we did defer to people that knew better. And the recommendation always is, is that when you have somebody with anorexia or any eating disorder, is to try to manage this from the home. So Mel became a sort of full-time at-home carer and I'd be helping out on a sort of part-time basis, but we try to manage the illness from the home. Um, and what that means is that, um, is that 
with anorexia is that there is this aversion to food and drink. So fundamentally that you don't want to eat or drink for fear of, of, of getting, getting bigger. So what you have to do as a parent is that you have to supervise every single meal time just to make sure that your child is eating everything that's put on the plate. And the reason why the supervision is so important is because if your attention is diverted for a nanosecond, is anorexia starts to play tricks. So Emily would start to sort of hide things down her cleavage. She would eat things and then be sick later on in the toilets. She would take laxatives um, to, 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 to get rid of sort of an, an ounce or two. So what we found out was that anorexia was a, a really brutal sort of um, merciless enemy and that we just couldn't afford to take our eyes off, off her for, for a second. That must have made mealtime as very stressful. It was because you're, you're sitting there and you're just looking at your daughter with the plate of food in front of her and she's looking at the plate of food and she doesn't want to eat it and you're desperate for her to eat it and it, you're just not quite sure what to do. And uh, um, and then when we found out that, that an empty plate of food wasn't a sign that she'd actually eaten it, but <laughs> maybe that she'd hidden it or had thrown it up or, or fed the dog, the dog suddenly put on lots of weight beneath the table because that became a a recipient of, of, of the food, you just you just were stressed most of the time. Yes, that's a fair point. How did it affect the rest of your family? Because you've got a, a couple of other kids, haven't you? Um, yes, um, it affected Jack, our youngest, most of all, because at the time he would have been probably about 13, so still at home. Will was a couple of years older, so he'd just got into university. So he kind of missed the bloodbath, if that makes sense. Um, so Jack was the person that I mean, did amazingly well because imagine if you're 13, 14 and all the attentions with your with your daughter, he had to become very, very self-sufficient. So, I mean, again, it's an awful thing to say, but like most clouds have got silver linings. So now Jack is 20, but he's, he's very, very kind of independent. He looks after himself. And part of it is because he had to be independent at the point when my daughter was very, 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 very ill. What helped Emily in terms of her anorexia? Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, Plan D. So Plan A was at home and didn't work. So Plan B, she then went as a sort of a day patient to a hospital in Oxford uh, for about eight weeks. And she tried to put on weight, try to get better, and that didn't work. Once that didn't work, we then were not able to get Emily into a, um, a national health um, hospital where there were beds because her weight wasn't low enough. So the, the irony is, is that your weight's going to be so low to get into an NHS bed but it wasn't low enough so we then had the choice to make well, what do we now do and so we had some private health funding through Booper so we then managed to get her into a, into a private institution where she spent a further seven weeks but that didn't work either so by, by not working what I mean is she even though you're in a private healthcare clinic and even though you've got nurses all over you anorexia was just too strong for them all and basically she still found ways of helping emily hide food be sick not eat so imagine seven weeks later comes out of out of a clinic you know the booper funding has run out and no progress to be made and at that point the doctor at the clinic said look unfortunately emily's going to need a long six to twelve month stay somewhere and because the funding was was limited we had to then look for somewhere in the nhs again but again, the same problem arose whereby there were, there were, there were no beds, nothing was available. So my daughter came out of the clinic, no beds, and she stopped eating. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't mean stopped eating lots. I mean, stopped eating. 
And so we had her at home, but there were no beds. And the local NHS were, were, were very, very helpful. But they said, I'm very, very sorry, but there's nothing we can do. And so what I had to do was basically get on the phone to every single NHS clinic across the country, myself, just to phone up. Do you have any beds? Do you have any beds? Do you have any beds? And everyone, I'm very sorry, but no, I'm very sorry, but no. And eventually, a lovely, lovely woman um, in a hospital in London said, look, we, this is very unusual. We don't ever usually get fathers calling up. It's usually doctors. And But as this happens, that there is one coming up in the next couple of weeks we can put you on the list. And then two weeks later, the, a second clinic called up. So it's a bit like two London buses where you suddenly you wait for, for one and then two come along. So we were given a choice. And we chose the one in Oxford because it was closer. And then Emily spent six months in that clinic um, and got a lot, lot better. I got a lot, lot better. She's now 18 years old. Got a lot, lot better. And uh, she came out um, of that clinic after about six months and she was better, but not not 100% better. So it's a little bit like the analogy is where you're climbing Mount Everest. You get 200 feet beneath the top of Everest. You're almost there, but you stop. And with anorexia, you can't afford to stop. That last 200 feet is the hardest 200 feet, but you've, you've just got to go for it. Emily came out of the clinic 200 feet short. And we just didn't know. We thought, well, she's so much better now. But she came out and then still spent another two years as a, what we call, what, what is called rather, a functioning anorexic. So someone who's like not ill, ill, but is, is not better, better. So she was very, very limited, still very, very limited with what she ate and how she ate. So to go back to your initial question is how did she get better? With the illness, unfortunately, the patient only gets better when they want to become better. So it's a personal choice. There's no medication. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no magic bullet. There's no tablets. So when Emily aged about 19, 19, 20, said, I've had enough of this, suddenly she started to get better. And and so again, it's a little bit like with my illnesses. It, it it it's not a conventional cure, but with anorexia, it really is dependent upon the patient wanting to get better, and then they get better. Did you find it easier to support her or relate her because of your own mental health issues? Yeah, I think um, it was hard because when I saw Emily, first of all, I could see the suffering because she she had depression and anxiety linked to anorexia. They often go together as, as mental illnesses. So when I saw her eyes and just, it, particularly in the first year or so, I felt so much pain for her because I could see what pain she was going through. That was the bad news. But the good news was I kind of understood what she was going through. So I could be quite empathetic. And because mental illness is it's not a logical illness, is that what people with anorexia don't need is rational discussions. They don't need to be told, look, if you don't eat, you're not going to have strong, healthy bones. If you're not going to eat, you won't have children. So it just doesn't help. So they just need to be talked to in a very, very irrational, almost emotional way. So what they need is plenty of listening, plenty of empathizing, plenty of hand-holding, plenty of hugging, plenty of, look, it's going to be all right. Trust me, it's going to be all right there. And that's it. And so it was, it was, whereas with Mel, is Mel, it's completely, it's completely normal, much more even keeled. So 
her line of attack was often more rational, more logical. And so it's almost like when she was talking rash at Emily, Mel could have been talking Swahili almost. It just was a different language. You almost needed to speak the, the language of irrational, if that makes sense, because that's what she understood quite well. What would you say to any other parents who have a child with an eating disorder? Good question. Um, I think first of all is to is to recognise as soon as possible so that since Emily's become better and we've had other other parents who've said, look, I'm a bit worried about my child. What should I do? You know, and I said, I think the first thing is just take it seriously. I mean, really take it seriously that the earlier that you can actually do something about it, the better. Um, even if the child doesn't want to get treatment, I think it's really important to try to get to people that know better. It's such a tricky illness. By the time that we, we'd realised that Emily was anorexic, she'd been ill for about six months. You know, so we just caught it. So I think the first thing is just try to be proactive and get help. Um, I think the second thing is to try to understand it's basically a mental illness. Although people think about anorexia as well, it's just about being thin, looking thin, it's not eating enough, but, but that's driven by a mental illness. There. So it's to understand that it's, it's not rational and to 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 treat it such as such um a mental illness that's number two i think number three is to um is just to be patient and understand that you could be in it for 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 the for the long term if that makes sense or it's it's not necessarily going to be a quick fix it would be much better if fundamentally you could break a leg and you had a very very clear path to recovery one, two, three, okay, six months, three months, we're back to... But anorexia, it just goes off on, 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 its, on its own path here. So just, just be a bit patient. And I think number four is the, the key thing is, is, is if you are not there for your child, nobody else will be. So just to, just to try to give your child the reassurance that actually it's going to be okay. Just trust me, it's going to be okay. And when you are out of this, the world will be a much, much better place. There'll be the light will be much, much brighter. They won't believe it at the time. They won't, they, 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 they won't because they'll be, in such, they'll be in such mental pain. But all you can say is look at them in the eyes and say, it's going to be all right. So I think that'd be the fourth thing. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from Mentally yours, mentally yours. If you've been struggling with any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please call the Samaritans. They're on 116123. Also, you can find them online at samaritans.org. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 